John 19 is where we're at. Um, last week we were looking in John 18 and John 19. You remember we looked at some different responses from people to Jesus. And specifically, we saw the response of the Pharisees, really the religious leaders of the Jews. And they responded to Jesus in pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, really hatred. They hated Jesus. And they had taken counsel together to concoct a way to, to kill Jesus. That's what they really wanted to do. And then we looked at um, Pilate. Pilate was a politician. He wasn't a very good one. Um, he had a lot of authority and a lot of power. He hated the Jewish people. Um, he didn't have a good reputation. He had made some major mistakes. And the Jewish leaders were requiring Pilate. They really put him in a no-win situation. You're either going to kill this innocent man or we're going to riot and make Caesar upset at you as the governor of Palestine or Judea in those days. And uh, it may cost you your, your career or it may cost you your life. And so Pilate, you remember, really couldn't care less about Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't care. He was superstitious. Uh, I really think Pilate wished he'd never heard the name of Jesus and never met him. Um, so Pilate was in a no-win situation with Jesus and really the, the, um, the Jewish leaders of the day. And he didn't care. He just wanted to get Jesus off of his hands and appease the crowd. And he wanted really to keep his career. He wanted to keep his career. He wanted to keep his life just the way it was. If it had to be him or Jesus, it was going to be Jesus. And uh, Pilate was not an honest man. Then we saw the, you remember the soldiers. Um, and they mocked Jesus, ridiculed Jesus. And they really couldn't care less about Jesus either. It was just a matter of, they just it was just another day of work and uh, having fun at Jesus' expense. And they didn't care about him at all. They were indifferent to him, and he was in the way of their having fun, per se. And so there are all different ways that people respond to Jesus. Some people hate him. Uh, some people, Jesus seems to be in their way of their career or of a happy life, like Pilate. And for the, the soldiers, some people respond like the soldiers did, mocking, jesting, but not loving or receiving Jesus. We come to John 19, and I want to look at a portion of Scripture that, to me, is very intriguing. John, unlike some of the other gospel accounts, he doesn't talk about the crucifixion. He doesn't talk about the details of the crucifixion at all. He doesn't talk about a spear being thrust into Jesus' side. All he talks about is, all he says is he was crucified. That's it. Um. Jesus suffered tremendously on the cross, and we talked a little bit about that physical suffering last week, but the, the main suffering that Jesus endured was not physical, it was spiritual. And in that I mean this, when Jesus, who knew no sin, became the sin of the entire world, that was suffering that nobody has ever endured before or since Jesus died on the cross. It was tremendous. Now, I want to remind you this morning of John and what his purpose was. What was John's purpose for the entire gospel, according to John? Well, in John 20 and verse 31, it says this, But these things are written, but these are written, 
that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That was John's purpose. Now, John, at the time he's penning down the gospel according to John, we believe the gospel according to John was penned down about 85 or 90 A.D. We believe Jesus was crucified in 30 A.D. So, over 50 years have passed. The other apostles are dead. John is the only one living. He's lived a long life. He suffered for the Lord Jesus Christ. John, as an older apostle, is not the same man he was when he was first saved and first following Jesus. And you remember John and his brother James had the nicknames Sons of Thunder. Okay, They were arrogant, brash men when Jesus saved them, and those habits died hard. But Jesus' love for John arrested John, and they transformed John. So over 50 years have passed. John is older. He's thinking back to that morning of the crucifixion. He was there. He was an eyewitness of those events. And I think the question that John addresses throughout the gospel is, was, was Jesus honored? Was he glorified? If I were to ask you, was the crucifixion of Jesus something that glorified him? Did it honor him? What, what would you, what, how would you respond to that? And, and think about it. I think our first response would be absolutely not. There was no glory in the cross. It was, a, it was a place of shame and persecution and death. There was no glory in the cross at all. That might be our first response. But John would differ with you. And he would differ with me. You know, when we think about Jesus, his birth, we would think about uh, the, the, the heavenly host coming to those shepherds and declaring unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. And they sing and, and, and the announcement goes forth. And wow, we think there'd be glory in that. Or maybe when the wise men came, they bring gifts from afar to worship the king. Well, there would be glory in that. Or maybe when he raised Lazarus from the dead, there would be glory in that. Or he fed the 5,000. There would be glory in that, making the lame to walk and the blind to see glory everywhere in all of that for Jesus. But here we have him on the cross. And John, when he thinks back to that day, I think without a doubt, John's conclusion would be Jesus, the Christ, was lifted up. He was exalted and he was glorified, even dying for the sins of the whole world. And I want to see that this morning. Let's look at the passage. John 19, I'll begin reading in verse number 16. John 19, verse number 16. I'll read down through verse 27. It says, Then delivered he, Pilate, him, Jesus, therefore unto them, the soldiers, Roman soldiers, to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and the two other with him, on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city of Jerusalem, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. 
Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. There was no seam in it. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, and cast, uh, but cast lots for it. Whose shall it be? That the scripture, John adds, why did they do this? That the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And then saith he to the disciples, of the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Let's pray. And I want to notice three areas where Jesus was exalted even while on the cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit today, by your word. Father, we think that to be honored means to have an easy life, to be showered with gifts, to be appreciated and loved. And yet, even in Christ's suffering, he was honored, he was glorified. Father, you've given each of us a cross to bear. And it's different for each of us. For some, it seems heavier. For others, it seems impossible. Some of us aren't even aware we have a cross to bear. Father, I pray that we would bring glory and honor to you, our Heavenly Father, the way Jesus brought glory and honor to you in his suffering and bearing his cross for us. Speak to us now. Encourage our hearts. Teach us, I pray. Now. Thank you for it. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So is there any glory when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross? That's the question. Uh, is there any glory with Jesus being murdered in the hearts of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders? Is there any glory when a political leader seeks his own welfare and neglects a man he was supposed to protect in this situation? And the answer to that is yes. And I think there are four different ways in this passage, and we're only going to get to three of them today, maybe, um, where God is glorified, where the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. And I'm, I'll tell them to you up front. One way that Jesus was glorified is that the scriptures were actually fulfilled. Prophecies. What's a prophecy? Prophecy is something that God has said that is going to happen in the future, happens. Now, men say a lot of things, but we can't predict the future. But God knows the future. He's actually in the future right now. And he's here right now. And he's in the past right now. Okay, none of us can do any of that. But he is. So God has said years ago, hundreds of years ago, and in some cases thousands of years ago, he said what was going to happen in the future, and it actually came to pass. God brought it to pass. And in that, Jesus was glorified. Another way that Jesus was glorified is that there was a sign that was placed above his head. And even though it was an arrogant ruler, an arrogant governor, 
and it was hate-filled Jewish leaders that were involved, still the truth was spoken, and it was a declaration of the truth. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. True. It was true what was said. Jesus was lifted up and he was glorified in this. He controlled it all. Another way that Jesus was glorified is that in, in the love that he showed throughout the entire process. And I think that, was, that, that one arrests my attention the most. Even while he was hated and despised and rejected of men, Jesus responded in absolute love. And that goes against every fleshly fiber of our being. Jesus responded in absolute love. And as John, some 50, 55 years later, as an old man, looks, remembers back to that day that he was there for, he thinks about a day that no doubt as he stood there, he found himself broken. He found himself afraid, wondering what was going to happen. As he looks back 50, 55 years later, he sees very clearly as the Holy Spirit of God brings these things to his mind, that Jesus actually was glorified even in his crucifixion. I want to look at it this morning. Number one, Jesus was exalted in his crucifixion because prophecy was fulfilled. Look at verse number 16 again. It says, Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one, Jesus in the midst. So scripture was being was actually being fulfilled. What God had said was going to happen was actually happening. And Jesus was fulfilling what God had said. In verse 24, we're told specifically that the soldiers gambled for his garments. And John draws our attention to this truth, the fulfillment of scripture, fulfillment of prophecy. And look at in verse number 24, he tells us why they divided his garments. Verse 24, they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture, John adds this, the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, and then he quotes Psalm 22, they parted my raiments among them. And for my vesture, they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. And John draws our attention to this. Why did the soldiers gamble for his clothing? Why did they part his raiments? Why did they divide up four garments and then for the one garment that was unique to them, peculiar? They didn't want to rend it. It was made like a priest, the high priest's garment would wear, like a tunic. Uh, no seams. Uh, why did they gamble? And And... God had prophesied this years and years before. In verse number 28, we're told that Jesus said, I thirst. You see it in verse 28. Why did he say this? And this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. All of this is under the control of God. And there are many more prophecies. In fact, there are over 300 of them. Pilate handed in this situation, he handed an innocent man over to the executioners to be crucified. And how did Jesus go out? Well, the Bible says in our passage that they led him out. Was that normal for men who had been condemned to death by way of crucifixion? No. Typically, men were not led anywhere to the cross. 
Typically, they behaved like a wild animal who knew he was going to be killed. And they would run and they would scream and they would resist. And the Roman soldiers would have to corral them and drag them sometimes to the cross. It was not typical for men to walk to the cross to their death. In fact, it it was normal in that day. Crucifixion happened often. It would have been common to see men hanging on crosses. And in a group of this size, if we had lived in that day in Jerusalem and near Jerusalem, all of us would have witnessed crucifixions. They did them publicly. They wanted people to see them. They wanted specifically the Jewish people to see them. And so a man would hang on the cross, not just for hours, but for days. And when he finally died, they would leave him on the cross sometimes. And it was a statement. So everybody, our children would have seen crucifixions. It was not something that could be avoided. And so the Jewish people, knowing this, uh, a person who was headed for crucifixion would fight and he would resist. Even though he'd been battered and bruised and beaten, his, he, if he was familiar with crucifixion, if he knew it was coming at all, he would, he would resist. And oftentimes they had to be driven to the cross. But not Jesus. Look at the passage in verse number 16 or verse number 7. Let's see, verse 16. It says at the end of verse 16, they took Jesus and led him away. They led him. Mark chapter 15 records the same truth. It says, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Luke 23 records the same thing. In verse 36, it says they led him away. And it really is remarkable. Jesus didn't have to be driven. He came for this purpose. He knew that from the very beginning. He had always known that. He had always, always known that. It was for that reason that he came. John 10 and verse 18, Jesus said this, No man taketh it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, my life down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Also in the passage in verse 17, we see that Jesus was bearing his own cross. You see it there. And he, and he bearing his cross, would be the cross member, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Reminds me of the Old Testament in Genesis where Isaac, you remember, obeyed the Lord and he took his son, his only son, or excuse me, Abraham took his only son, Isaac, or Jacob. (laughs) And they made their way uh, to that mount. And they get to the base of the mount and Isaac says, where's the, where's the sacrifice, Dad? And Isaac would have borne those, that wood on his back as he made his way up that mount. And you remember... His father raised the knife and was to plunge it into his son. And God told him not to do that. He provided a substitute for his son Isaac. Well, in this case, Jesus was the sacrifice. and There was no substitute. He was our substitute. He took our place. And he bore that cross and he took it to the, to the mount. Of course, Simon, the other count of the gospel, records how one of the soldiers brought Simon in of Cyrene and he helped Jesus 
finished carrying it because Jesus no longer could bear that. In verse number 17, the beginning part, it says that Jesus went forth. You see it there, the verse 17, it says, and he bearing his cross went forth. Uh, and the word forth means out. He went out. Well, what did he go out of? Well, he went out uh, not only of the judgment hall, but he also went out of the city of Jerusalem. And why, why did he go out? Well, Hebrews 13 tells us that he suffered outside the gate. And in the Old Testament, in Exodus and Leviticus as well, sacrifices for sin were made outside of the gate. Jesus, ultimately, he is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the final sacrifice. He is the only true sacrifice. And he suffered crucifixion, a a crucifixion, a, a sacrifice for sin. He suffered outside of the gate. And he, he was lifted up in this. Now, multiple times, at least two times, Pilate, when the mob was chanting, crucify him, crucify him, at least two times, Pilate told the mob, he said, if you want him, you take him. Speaking to the religious leaders, you kill him. Go ahead. I don't want anything to do with this man. And uh, that would not have fulfilled prophecy. And the way that the Jewish people carried out capital punishment was different than the Romans the Jewish people would have carried out capital punishment by stoning. And they would take a person to a pit about 11 feet deep or so. The person who had been defended would push the person who had been condemned to death over the edge of the pit 11 feet. If the person did not die, and I don't believe they often did die from 11 foot fall, the person who had been offended would then take a rock, a stone, and he would try to throw it down into the pit on top of the person and crush their head or, or land that stone on their chest to kill them. I don't imagine they were awfully that accurate with that either. So then all of the witnesses would gather stones themselves, and they would stone the person in the bottom of the pit until the life was out of the body of that person. Jesus was not cast down. The prophecy of Scripture says he had to be lifted up, and he was. And so the Romans ended up carrying out the crucifixion, In John 3 and verse 14, Jesus had said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Later, Jesus said in John 12, And I, if I be lifted up from earth, I will draw all men unto me. And so the fact that he was not stoned by the Jews, even though Pilate gave them permission several times to stone him, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was lifted up. In Isaiah 53, in in, in verses 9 and 12, it tells us that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. In verse 18, look with me there, it says, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And of course, the other gospels tell us that these two that were crucified with Christ, one on each side, were malefactors or lawbreakers. That had been prophesied. Jesus where the Messiah was going to die, and he was going to die with lawbreakers. And he did. He was crucified with two thieves. Psalm 22 is a psalm of prophecy and describes Jesus' death in detail. A piercing, exhaustion, the body out of joint, stress on the heart, weakness, raging thirst, torture, and all of his muscles taut. Psalm 22 and verse 23, the latter part says that He would have a a tunic that was seamless, woven in one piece, and that it would be gambled for. There There was a tunic in the Old Testament that the high priest wore. 
high priest who would enter into the Holy of Holies to make an atonement. The high priest who acted as a go-between between a holy God and a sinful people. Well, there is only one great high priest, and that high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to this day, he continually makes intercession for you and for me. But he died in our place. He entered into the Holy of Holies, so to speak, as the very sacrifice for our sin. He shed his own blood for our sin. It says they gambled over his garments. In chapter 22 of Psalm Psalm 22 and verse 18, it says, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. He, John actually re- records this in verse 24. He quotes from that psalm. Look there. He says, They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture, John says, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They part my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. It's interesting to me, John they, they didn't have the New Testament like we have it today. John was an older man. He would have had the Old Testament or access to it. I can imagine John in those 50 plus years after he was there on this day to witness Jesus' death, I can imagine John going to the scriptures as he would have done, learning them and growing in them. I can imagine him reading the Psalms. I can imagine him coming to Psalm 22 and, it, and the lights turning on, seeing it as if he had never seen it before. He witnessed this. He stood at the foot of the cross. He witnessed Psalm 22. He saw it. Jesus Christ is our high priest and he orchestrated it all. And so John, as he looks back to that event when he was a young man, sees it differently now perhaps. And he realizes Jesus was glorified and he was honored Because he was actually in control. He was fulfilling what he said was going to happen. Pilate wasn't in control. The religious leaders weren't in control. The riotous mobs weren't in control. Those who rejected him weren't in control. Those who loved him weren't in control. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, was in control. And he is lifted up because of it. There's a second reason that Jesus is exalted or was exalted on the cross, and that is seen in verse 19, and that is this, Jesus was exalted because his enemies proclaimed who he was. Now, it's one thing if you, uh, if, if you like the Detroit Lions, how many of you would actually admit to that? <laughs> There's like three people. All right, we're finally getting somewhere. I really don't know why you put yourself through all that struggle, Jimmy, year after year. Anyway, but if you're a Lions fan, you root for them, you you promote them even though, you know, bad, because you you love them, you like them. I don't know why, but you do, you know. But to be promoted by someone who hates you or doesn't care about you would be something totally different. And that's what happened in this in this situation. Someone who is indifferent to Jesus, someone who didn't care about him, promoted him. God was in this. Jesus was actually glorified. He received glory and honor, and actually truth was spoken by a man who didn't care about him at all. Look at the passage, verse 19. I'll read down through verse 22. It says, And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
This title then read, Many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. And then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. You can't, you can't do that. You can't write that he's the king of the Jews. But that's who he was. Look at verse 22. Pilate answered, and he answers, and this is a uh, rebellious answer. He says, what I have written, I have written. In other words, I'm not going to change it. I'm tired of placating you. I'm tired of you telling me everything that I need to do. So there's all this political jockeying going on. But in, 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 even within all this political jockeying, Jewish leaders who hate Jesus and want him dead, and a, and a Roman governor who doesn't care about Jesus and he can't stand the Jews, the truth was still spoken. And I love this. I love this. It was customary when someone was to be crucified that they were paraded through town. And they would drag their own cross or a cross member of it. And in front of that person who was to be crucified, there would be a man who would carry a sign. And on that sign would be written his offense. What he was going to die for, the reason he was going to be executed would be written on that sign. The problem for Pilate when it came to Jesus was Jesus was innocent. There was no crime he could put on the sign. And so he came up with something, or I should say God gave him something to write. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And there would have been a man, no doubt, in front of Jesus carrying that sign. And the Bible records for us how they nailed it to the cross above Jesus. You know, by the way, Jesus, as he was going through all of this, as he was being taken from judgment to execution, you notice how it happens immediately. Finally, finally, Pilate washes his hands. He says, fine. He turns him over to the executioners and he's led to Golgotha. And by the way, this was a breaking of law. It broke the Jewish law. The Jewish law required that they wait days before they actually executed someone who was found guilty. Because that would allow for a defense. Maybe someone could come up with some evidence that would prove that the man was innocent. And therefore it would keep an innocent man from dying. The Romans had a law as well that required them to wait two days before carrying out an execution. But they don't, do, they don't go by the Jewish law. They don't abide by the Roman law. They just lead Jesus away to be executed. But this sign itself brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Pilate had repeatedly stated that in Jesus, he found no fault. Jesus was innocent. Repeatedly, he had said it. In fact, between the gospel accounts, Pilate made that statement, that declaration, six different times. He walked out six different times and says, Jesus, I find no fault in this man. There is This man has done nothing amiss. So there's nothing... There's no reason to execute this man. Well, why then is he carrying out this execution? Well, remember, Pilate was between a rock and a hard place. If the Jews rioted, which they were threatening to do, word would get back to Caesar and Pilate, who had already made some terrible mistakes as a governor of this that province. Um, Pilate probably would have been removed from power. He would have lost his lifestyle, lost his home, 
lost his political uh, position, and it's even possible that Pilate might have been executed. So Pilate's in a situation where it's either me or Jesus. And of course, he, cho- he chose himself. And he's, he's afraid. Pilate was definitely afraid. Now, Jesus hadn't committed a crime, and Pilate knew it, so he can't put a a crime on the sign in front of Jesus. So instead, he puts this Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and he nails it over the head of Jesus on the cross. And I don't believe Pilate was concerned about Jesus. I don't believe he was trying to be on Jesus' side, but this sign did two things. One, it declared Jesus' innocence. If you'd been walking down the road and there were crosses You could look at the cross, you'd see the man, and you'd look above the man's head, and you would see why he was hung, why he died. And you could look at a man and say, oh, that's terrible. Oh, he died because he murdered somebody. Or or this man over here, oh, how terrible, but he died, he died, he was put to death because he was a thief. You could go walk along, you you would see why men died. And of course, the Romans did it to strike fear into the hearts of the Jews. And by the way, I I remind you that Roman citizens, except in certain unusual circumstances, could not be crucified. They were protected under Roman law. They were not allowed to be crucified unless Caesar himself declared it. So these were all the people that the Romans oppressed that would be hung. And it kept people in check. It kept the population in check. And that's how the Romans handled it. But this sign, while I think without a doubt Pilate was trying to insult the Jews, he was trying to insult the Jewish religious leadership, it ended up being a declaration that Jesus was innocent, that he he had done nothing wrong. There was no crime above his head. And more than that, it was actually a declaration of the truth. That's who he was. This was Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews, that's who he was. You know, Pilate's sarcasm and mockery that really infuriated the Jewish leadership. Look at verse 20. It says, this title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, so nigh to the city of Jerusalem. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. And then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate had this written, this this truth. He didn't think it was true. He didn't care. But he had it written, and it was true. He had it written in three different languages. He had it written in the language of Hebrew, which was the language of religion, and the the language of the people of, of Jerusalem and Judea. It was Israel's language. He had it written in Greek, which was the language of culture, was the language of Greece. He had it written in Latin, which would have been the, the language of Rome or the language of power. And Pilate chose these languages so that everybody could read it. He wanted everybody to read it. You know, Pilate wasn't as much in charge as he thought he was in charge. It was a declaration of Jesus' innocence. It was a declaration of the truth, his own enemies. And in this, God was glorified. In this, the Lord Jesus Christ was glorified. Because there were Jewish pilgrims all around the time of the Passover from all over the the area of the Mediterranean. And all of those languages would be represented among those people. But in foolishness and arrogance, Pilate actually declares the truth. Because Jesus 
was of Nazareth. And Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Do you remember when he was born, the angel came to Mary and he declared to the to, to, to Jesus' mother, Mary, that she was going to have a child and that he was going to be a king. And that he was going to reign on a throne over an eternal kingdom. Wise men, you remember, came from the east searching for him as God's king. In fact, at the very beginning of this very week, which he was crucified, when he came into the city, John 12 records for us that the people of Israel took branches of palm trees and they went forth to meet him and they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Pilate ignorantly declares the truth, kind of like Caiaphas did back in chapter 11 when he was talking about killing Jesus. And so they came to Pilate, and these religious leaders of the Jews come to Pilate, and they say, you can't write the king of the Jews. You have to say that he said he was the king of the Jews. But you can't write this. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. I've had enough. You've pushed far enough. I'm not moving anymore. But all of these people, all all this bantering and these politics going back and forth and who's in charge and who's in control and that you're not going to tell me what to do, and we are going to tell you what to do. And you know who was in control of all of this? The Lord Jesus Christ was in control of it all. And he brings people into authority and gives people positions of power who may or may not deserve it. He gives people, he raises people up and puts them in positions of authority and leadership to accomplish his purpose. He knew who Pilate was. He knew what what Pilate would do. He brought Pilate up to that place to do what he had ordained be done. He allowed those religious leaders to be in positions of authority. They were not good men. They were not godly men. They did not fear God or love God. Yet God allowed them to be in those positions to do what he desired that they do. He knew what they would do. And he does the same thing today, by the way. God's will will be accomplished. He will not be stopped. The real question is, where will we find ourselves? Will we find ourselves trusting him as history continues to roll along? Will we find ourselves doing what is right, even though it may cost us something? God is the Messiah, and the sign declared it, He is the king of the Jews. And you know what? To this day, history does not record a crucified Savior with a list of crimes over his head. To to this day, history records a crucified Savior with a title above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Christ was honored. He was glorified in this. He is the king not only of Israel, but he'll be the king of the entire world. And Philippians 2 says that someday every knee is going to bow before him. Every knee is going to bow. There's one last way in which Jesus was exalted. And that is this. He was exalted because he loved while he was suffering. He loved while he was suffering. You ever find yourself getting cranky? Right? Right? Instead of angry, some have changed the word from angry to, is it hangry? It's kind of like between when you're hunger, hungry, you get angry. Are you like that? Do you, do you, do you have a shorter fuse? 
Are you cranky sometimes? There are some days, and I'll admit, where I'll be in the house and Cindy will say, are you hungry? Or uh, I think in the past you actually, if I was in pain some way, are you hurting? Like, what's wrong with you because you're not acting normal? Okay? Uh, certainly those sort of things can affect us, can't they? Um, Jesus was suffering as no man has ever suffered. And what what is it that comes out of him during his suffering? And I'll tell you, sympathy and love. Now, in our flesh, sympathy and love don't come out of us. But when you and I walk in the Spirit and we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what comes out of you and me? Love. You know what this world desperately needs to see in our day? Love. This man was hated. He was rejected by the very people who he came to save. They despised him. They'd worked to kill him. They had murdered him, I don't know how many times, in their hearts. And yet, out of Jesus, in the day and in, in all of his life, because he is love, but specifically, and we see this in John, and John seems to highlight this, in the time period of about 24, 36 hours before he's hanging on the cross, you know what's coming out of Jesus, just flowing out of Jesus, is love. And the world desperately needs to see love. I mean, real, genuine love. And by the way, they still killed him. So please don't misunderstand me to say, well, pastor said, you know what, if we'll just love people, people will love us back. That's not what I said. They hated him. Many of these people, by the way, who are at the foot of Jesus' cross, I believe were also there. I believe this all my heart. We're also there in the day of Pentecost. Because Peter talks to them specifically. He talks to them as you are the ones who crucified him. And I believe in the days and the weeks that followed between Jesus' death and crucifixion with all the the sky turned dark and the whole earth shook. And they themselves heard Jesus' words of sympathy and love. Uh, I don't think, I, in fact, the Bible tells us that they beat their chest and they said, what have we done? And later, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people repent of their murder and rejection of Jesus Christ. And they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and they were saved. Some of the same people who were here at the foot of the cross mocking the Savior, were there on the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, a third lady, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and a fourth lady, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. He's thinking of his mother. He's hanging on a cross. And then saith he to the disciples, Behold, to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. So here's the scene at the, at the cross. The crowd of, it's a crowd of about 500 people, and you have the chief priests and the rulers of Israel, the Sanhedrin. You've got Pharisees who would be there. You have the Roman authorities there. You have soldiers who are the executioners, and you have soldiers who are acting as... Uh, crowd control, you have a centurion who's there, and then you have, in contrast to all these folks who are ignorant of who Jesus is and who have been rejecting him continually, you have five disciples, true followers of Jesus, just five. Four of them are women. 
One of those women is Mary, his mother. Talk about the memories that have been running through her mind. And you have one apostle. All the others have fled, and his name is John. Back in Luke 2, Simeon had told Mary that she was going, that the child she was going to have was going to come into the who was coming into the world for the fall and the rising of many. And that through him, her son, a sword was going to pierce her soul. Mary had raised the perfect sinless son of God in her home. She was loved by him with a love that was unlike the love of any other person who had ever walked the face of the earth. And I think she loved him in a way, consequently, she loved him in a way that she could never love any other person. It's the same way that you and I love him in that sense. We love him. We love the Lord in a way that we don't love anybody else. And now Mary stands here close to the cross and she's watching her son suffer. But not just her son, she's watching her Savior suffer. She knows who he is. And I, and I imagine with Mary, there would have been times where she would have wondered what, it, what those words of the angel really meant. I mean, a king to rule. I mean, she had heard about the crowds churning in his favor. Maybe this was the beginning of his reigning. But now everything's turning the other way, and here he is. Naked, beaten, barely recognizable, Jesus. And he was dying for her, by the way, because she herself was a sinner. She needed a Savior. And he was dying for you and for me. And a little later in the scene, they fade away into the background, but at the beginning, they're very near the cross. Jesus wasn't alone. Not everybody had forsaken him, but why weren't there more? Well, nobody wanted to be identified with somebody who'd been accused of trying to overthrow Roman government and Caesar in particular. And that's the accusation that the religious leaders had brought against Jesus. And all the apostles, except for John and these four women, had fled. And it took a lot of courage to show up there. And stand in the midst of a riotous mob who'd been chanting, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, you imagine how many of us want to go stand in the, in the midst of a riotous mob? None of us do. But there they are. It would have taken great courage. But more than courage, it took an overwhelming love. That's what it took. That's why they were there. John had never forgotten Christ's love. And again, he's old as he's penning down these words. In his entire gospel, John never refers to himself or his family by his name. He had a name. His name was John. And he had a nickname. His name, nickname, along with his brother James, were, was uh, Sons of Thunder. And it was a name they had earned because they were self-promoting, bold, and brash men. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, when they had come into a Samaritan village and were rejected, they asked the Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume the entire town, Lord? I mean, there's a form of evangelism. We tried to announce your coming. They don't want you. So do you want us to call fire down from heaven and, and consume the entire city? I mean, this, this, these were two of the apostles. And Jesus responds to them in Luke 9, and he, he turns and he rebuked them. And he said, you know not what manner of spirit ye are of. 
For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They went to another village. <laughs> you know, something dramatic had happened in John's life. It changed him forever. He was overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus loved him. That's it. You know what changed John's life? He was overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus loved him. When my children were younger, sometimes we'd sing when we put them to bed, and we'd sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves me. You know what John refers to himself over and over again in his gospel? Does anybody remember that? The disciple whom Jesus loved. I used to read that and kind of wonder, That's a, is that arrogance? Like, Jesus loved me more than the other disciples. But that's not how he meant it. He meant it more like the psalmist, when the psalmist wrote, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Jesus loves me. That's a miracle. God loves me. And that's what changed John's life. And he couldn't get away from it. Because being a son of thunder isn't the kind of person you necessarily want to be around. And we heard it, and I read it to you. He rebuked him. You don't even know where you're, who you're from. I mean, what are your thoughts? You don't even know where these thoughts come from. You know, pull yourself together. I mean, this is who he had to work with. And he, he's worked long with you and me, too. John, you, you remember in the gospel, according to John, words, some of the most famous words most anybody would know are, for God so loved the world. And when John wrote the first epistle, 1 John, it's all about love. And so here is John, a transformed man, a man once known for wanting to call down fire from heaven and to burn up an entire town. And he's become the, the apostle of love. Why? Be, why? Because he's been loved by God. That's why. And John recounts of the love and the sympathy of Christ while here he is suffering on a cross, rejected of men. His thoughts and concerns are for those that he loves. And even for those that didn't love him, like the soldiers when he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the mindset of a, 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 a Christian, a Christ follower, the Lord Jesus Christ. John, as he's writing this account, he's penning down these words. The Holy Spirit of God is giving him the words to say, bringing these things that he witnessed back to his mind. And he begins to recount how the love of Jesus Christ, he remembers how it had been just flowing out of him in the 24-hour period leading up to the crucifixion. Since Thursday when he was showing his disciples how to love in the upper room by washing their feet, when none of them are willing to lower themselves at all, yet Jesus girds himself and he goes and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And then he tells them, love like this. Love like this. They didn't know he would be dead by that time the next day. Jesus had loved his troubled disciples enough to prepare a place for them. You remember, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again. And bring you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This was in his heart. What, what makes a person say, hey, I want you to come be with me. I want you to come live with me. I want to take care of you. I want to meet your every need. What makes a person do that? Love. And now John, all these things are coming back to his mind. And he's seeing 
that Jesus was actually glorified on the cross. He was magnified. It was so obvious because of his sympathy and his, his, his love. That same evening, Jesus loved enough to comfort them. He loved enough to teach them and provide a comforter for them in the coming days. He loved enough to provide them peace and not the peace of this world, but his own peace, not of this world. He told them, I'll come again unto you. He loved them enough to give them joy. He loved them enough to give his life. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This was a massive expression of love. He prayed in chapter 17 to his father that someday his own could be with him. This is what he wanted. This is what he longed for. The love is just pouring out of his heart. Jesus, while he's hanging on the cross in the scene of the greatest hate and suffering that this world has ever seen, love dominates. God was reigning over it all. Do you have a love for Christ? Because he loves you. And his love that had been pouring out over this last 24-hour period, he knew what was coming. With all that pressure, and you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prayed, no, his disciples couldn't stay awake to pray with him even. And there he is praying alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what's happening? He's beginning to sweat. And it wasn't because it was hot, because they had fires going. He begins to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Physically, the physical body of Jesus is being overwhelmed with the reality of becoming sin for the whole world. He's alone. And all of his love culminates here on the cross as he looks down at his mother and he says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He's taking care of his mom. It's just who he is. So selfless. Do you love him? Do I love him? He lives inside of us if we're a child of God. As Christians, we're not distanced from him. It's not a matter of, well, pastor, you know, there's Jesus and then there's me. No, if you're a born-again child of God, he lives inside of you. And I dare say, and history proves this to be true, that the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ down through the ages who have lived through tremendous hardship and persecution and suffering, have been able to, by the grace of God, love others the way Jesus Christ loved on the cross. He did not respond in kind. He responded in love. It changed John's life. It's changing And I know if you are a child of God, his love is changing your life. So what we ought to say is, God, do your will in my life. Take me all the way. I'll go through what you want me to go through. I'll bear the cross you set before me. Lord, you know who I am in my flesh. And you know who you want me to be. Your will be done in my life.
glorify yourself in me. Would you pray with me and then we'll sing. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness. You are so full of mercy. You have been so gracious to us. Father, I pray as we sing this song together, I pray that it would be true in our hearts. Lord, may we sing it out. May may you hear it. May your heart be pleased with what you hear and what you find to be true in our hearts. Lord, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for loving us. Father, our world could use an awful lot more of Christ-likeness. And some will receive and rejoice and glorify your name. And, Father, others will hate. But that is not up to us. Father, you have made us, you have saved us, and Lord, you desire for us to be salt and light, and I pray that it would be so. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.